0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another amazing guest to reintroduce to you now. Dr. Adrian Sotomoda is a returning guest on our show. Be sure to check out episode 138 of Boundless Body Radio, which was part of a special series we did featuring Dr. Nick Norwitz as the guest host. We also hosted Dr. Sotomoda on episode 340, titled The Lipid Energy Model with Dr. Adrian Sotomoda. Dr. Sotomoda is an MD. PhD and specialist in internal medicine, and is a data science researcher at the Unidad de Investigación de Enfermedades Metabolicas. Dr. Sotomoda is passionate about studying low carbohydrate and ketogenic diets and how they impact human metabolism. Dr. Sotomoda earned his MD from the Universidad Nacional Autónoma de México and earned his PhD at Oxford. He has created many resources to help people successfully implement a low carbohydrate diet and provides that help for both English and Spanish-speaking individuals. He is the co-author of a 2022 paper titled, The Lipid Energy Model, Reimagining Lipoprotein Function in the Context of Carbohydrate-Restricted Diets, which was also co-authored by a former guest, Dr. Norwitz and Dave Feldman, who were both hosted in episode 109 of our show. Dr. Adrian Sotomoto, what an absolute honor it is to welcome you back to Balanced Body Radio. Thank you again. Thank you. Thanks, Casey. I love
1: love your podcast. And uh, I'm very grateful
0: to be here, to be here again. Well, I'm very grateful that you're here. I told you off air that I absolutely love your work. I love chatting with you. I always learn something new. You're always out doing so much. You're so busy and learning amazing new things that uh, now we're ready to share some of those learnings and hopefully advance um, the, the, the field in so many different things in, in different ways. So I really appreciate that. Um, I have to tell you that I took a trip to Mexico not too long ago, and I decided like this oh. country is so beautiful. The people are wonderful, and they're amazing, and I already speak Portuguese, so why don't I why don't I learn Spanish? I'm going to pull up Duolingo every single day in just five minutes. Simple habit. Let's start small. I'm going to go home, and that first day, we'll do it. It's been about a year and a half, and I have opened Duolingo exactly zero times, and so I apologize <laughs> if any Spanish I said in the introduction sounded a little bit like Portuguese.
2: No, not at all. No, 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 no. Uh, it was... It was. Uh, more, more than than uh, understandable and accurate. And uh, I mean, next time you're in Mexico, do do let me know.
0: Yeah, I will for sure. I absolutely will. I would love to go check out the Grand Prix down there. Actually, the Mexico City Grand Prix would be an amazing race to watch. I go check that out and give you a call. Yes, there. it's uh, it'd be amazing. To, to be honest, I've never been there, but everyone, I mean, all my friends who have say it's it's quite a show. So yeah, uh, uh, feel
2: uh, feel free to to. Just drop a message if you are attending that, yeah, that particular
0: th- that's one. That's awesome. The track is really unique because there's actually a stadium that um, the track kind of passes under. And there's a lot of, obviously, like really excited Formula One fans around the world. I have never heard the crowd at any race go as bananas as when Checo makes the, the corner and yeah. passes under the stadium. The place goes nuts. It's awesome. <laughs> it's awesome. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, Mexican crowds tend
2: to be loud. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's great. C- crazy to say the least. That's great. One thing I learned about you that I actually didn't know: you've been hit by a bus. I literally hit by a bus. What was that <laughs> like? <laughs>
2: um, yeah, that's well. well fortunately, uh, well, fortunately, in the midst or within an unfortunate event, uh, I was riding an Uber. And the bus crashed my Uber uh, from the rear, and yeah, I I I mean I did have a cervical fracture, a compression fracture, C five and C six, and I had to wear a rigid brace for half a year and do lots of rehab. But in the end, uh, it turned out well, and I did lose some mobility because of that. But you know, I mean, it could have could have been so much worse. Yeah. So so yeah. I mean, I, I had I had the worst part of that particular car crash because of the location I was in in the car. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's that's. Uh, I mean, fortunately, to be honest, I have almost no sequels. I mean, it's just uh, w- w- there are just particular you know situations or angles where I need to you know put my whole torso to,
0: Yeah, besides that, I think it's 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 just going to be one of those things that our mutual friend, Dr. Nick Norwitz is never going to let you forget about. I think he's always going to. Yeah,
2: yeah, sure, sure, sure. (laughs) 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 We we were were in the midst of of, of submitting a paper. And I mean, I was good enough. My hands weren't working. I just had a, you know, weird neck. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it's one of those stories. Nick will never
1: let me forget.
0: Definitely. Well, you grew up in a very smart household. Um, I believe your dad was a doctor. Your mom was into mm-hmm. philosophy. And when I go back and listen to some of our last interviews there's just a different way that you talk and it reminds me a lot of my kind of practice into stoicism and there's a way of like identifying things without getting too wrapped up or getting too personal in things that has been really helpful in my life and i'm just wondering what was it like to grow up in a house where philosophy was i'm i'm assuming talked about and practiced quite a bit and how has that affected your um, work today when you're looking at science and really complex studies
2: i mean it's hard to tell a difference because as you say it's the environment I was raised in. And in other words, I don't have much of a point of comparison, you know? Uh, because it really, it really shaped the way my brain is wired in a way. Uh, for example, my, my, my dad, he, he's, he's not a doctor. He's, well, not a medical doctor. Uh, uh, he's a an mathematician. And from him, I I got my love for statistics And physics. And I like this because since I was little, I tend to see science as, you know, philosophy of nature. And actually, for example, if you go and see Isaac Newton's degree, it was a doctor in nature's philosophy. In a way, the way I see philosophy is you know like the organized juxtaposition of ideas. And these ideas can sometimes be uh experiments, these
1: ideas can be semantical, these ideas can be
2: logical and derivations of a particular statement, these ideas sometimes have to do something with causality. And these ideas have sometimes uh, something to do with, I don't know, human behavior, religion, uh, how the world works. So to me, because my father, even when he, he didn't have, you know, like, formal training in philosophy until later in his life, we were all, my, my brother and I, we were always expected to make an extra effort in explaining our train of thought and to to
1: to explore or to, to you know to, to
2: reflect and to think about why we were feeling a certain way, why we were thinking a certain way. Uh,
1: something I, I remember
2: uh also frequently is that and I, I incorporate this in my daily life is um what you have to see to change your conclusion? If, if, if you saw what kind of evidence you would change your mind about. And for example, I think that's incredibly useful in science because, because I mean, you would expect that scientists would be open minded people who are willing to change their minds. But in reality, it's really not like that. Our, our human nature and our human biases. Uh, make it difficult for scientists who particularly who have bested uh, at least some of their identity to a particular idea to change their mind out that particular idea. And that's just you know human behavior and, and that's expected. That's why I think it's always useful to think and to analyze how does the evidence that would make me change my mind look like? Because I think this is helpful for design experiments. This is helpful for solving interpersonal issues for, for for learning about yourself and about others. And I mean even to this day and, and my relationship with my brother and with my parents
1: has definitely those accents. Yeah is, is uh
2: it's filled with contrasting ideas, contrasting uh Arguments, our banter tends to focus on. That was a poor argument, you know. Like, uh, and and I, to be honest, I don't know uh, a different situation regarding that because, of course, I I grew up in only one family in my case. So, so, so it definitely shaped how I see the world. Definitely. Shape how I do what I do. It's. I'm not saying everyone should do the same, you know. Uh, at the same time, I think that that uh, there's a variety of different uh, family environments or social environments where, with pros and cons, and I mean the con in our case is that we tend to overthink pretty much everything, yeah. you know, yeah. <laughs> and and we are we are capable of having a 20 minute heated debate on what particular cut of meat you wants to have for dinner and that's
1: not efficient many times and there's a I think there is definitely not a perfect a perfect
2: upbringing environment but it definitely shaped shaped uh I am it gave me some useful skills I am grateful for today and One of the things that I would highlight is that it made me feel comfortable with the idea of changing England. Uh, I I, I, I mean, as as we we talked before, I learned when I was in med school that uh, uh, diabetes is something that you can never reverse or cure. That uh, metformin is only for patients with perfect kidney function. That you should never prescribe metformin to type to people with type one diabetes. That you absolutely needed carbs to thrive. To, I mean, I was taught so many things that I don't believe today. And it was useful to be able to change my mind. To to to. That, that gave me the capacity to unlearn and learn again. Uh, which, of course, I think it's something essential in, in our, uh, in
0: particular in my field of practice.
1: Yeah.
0: Well, that, so for me, that is a very nice barometer of knowing who the people I should be following is. Like the people I've learned that say things very carefully, very deliberately, they define things really well. And then they also say, well, this, this this isn't the question we were asking with this particular study or they say we don't know or we we think that this is our idea this is our hypothesis versus i hear other people and they say like well everybody knows that whatever the sentence is. Everybody knows that you should have more fruits and vegetables. Experts agree that you should have more fruits and vegetables, things like that. And then you never really get to like, well, who said who, How, when or where was that proven? And and yeah, again, it, it, it's really nice to be able to help me understand who the people I should be following who are the people asking the right questions and, and who can maybe get us cl- at least closer to the answers. And this is where I think it's really helpful that people like Dave Feldman, like we mentioned in the introduction, we talked about heavily in. In the last episode that we did in episode 340, Dave explains that since he came from a data science background, more engineering. It's the expectation that you are destroying things that you've already made. You you are supposed to. In fact, the oldest ideas are the ones that need to be destroyed the most. And so, you know, when he came into the health field and started asking questions from that mindset, he, he's never in love with his ideas. In fact, he's always constantly trying to prove himself wrong to learn something new. So again, we talked about this in episode 340, but I don't think we can talk about your more recent work without reminding us how that all came about. Can you share Dave's story? What he learned, and how you got involved with all of his work that he's doing with cholesterol?
2: Sure. Uh, Dave was the first who very, you know, sharply uh, noticed that it is those who are lean and restrict carbohydrates the ones who have super high LDL changes in their blood uh, because. By then, there were already some studies involving different you know, degrees of carbohydrate restriction in different populations and for different medical purposes. And some of them were observing an LDL rise. Some of them observed LDL basically not changing at all. Some of them observing reductions. So it, it was not clear what made LDL change and in which direction. And Dave proposed that it was it was lean people. It was Lean people, and who, because they are lean, they have a more strained lipid oxidation demand when they have carbohydrate restriction. And that in order, the hypothesis he put forward was that in order to adapt to a particular demand, uh, lipoprotein metabolism changed differently in lean people versus in in people living with overweight. And the first time I heard about Dave was uh, listening to an episode that uh, from Peter Atiyah. And he described the experiments he used to do
1: with, with white bread. And I had to see that for myself. I did it on myself. I saw that because, I mean, I was lean. And I was already
2: used to restricting some carbohydrates. So so I said, I mean, I need to see if this if this happens on me as well. And then what I what I found was that yes, exactly what 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 he he describing himself and others was happening to me as well. And then I started changing my mind. I mean, this this is conflicting evidence to what I would expect from what I learned in med school. Um, because at, at the same time back then, I I used to think because that's what I learned saturated fat would make your LDL go up. And I simply attributed those audio changes to more saturated fat, but then I stupid that and still observed the audio changes going up. So again, I tested my myself against what someone else was saying. And I think that, I mean, that's that's how I got involved in that. Uh, later on, when I, mean, I knew about Dave way before he knew about me, Nick invited me to a data analysis project that he had with Dave. And that's how the LMH child paper came about. Uh that was published almost exactly one year ago and current developments of nutrition. And in that particular study we would uh we we analyzed uh data uh, from people saying I have the same you know like this this was my PMI when I started low carb this was my lipid panel this was my lipid panel after I adhered to the low carb hydro and then uh, because of that we we uh mentioned well what we well, put forward in a more you know formal way you could say a paper summarizing the existing evidence and the testable hypothesis of the lipid energy so you would expect that if you induce uh carbohydrate restriction you would see you know this spectrum of uh LDL changes those who are lean should have LDL elevations those who are obese should have LDL reductions and then the middle and then everything in the middle. And that it should be altered by energy demands, either exercise or or, or the degree of carbohydrates you are having. That's how I became involved in the elementary phenotype and the repeat energy model. I saw it you know, work on myself. By then, I already knew because I had, by then, I, I'm already sequenced myself, so uh, I, I did whole genome sequencing uh years ago, and I knew I have I, I don't have a familiar hypercholesterolemia, I don't have any of the genotypes associated with higher LDL. I mean, I, I, I that's what convinced me that it wasn't just you know, keto is harmful for people with uh, high LDL predisposition, generic predisposition. And and that that was it. That's how I became involved in that. Because of that uh, paper, because the senior author in the elementary paper is Professor David Ludwig. And that's how I got in touch with David. Actually, I got in touch with David many, many years before uh, when I was looking for a PhD program. Uh, I considered Harvard and Oxford, and I wrote to David Ludwig, but he didn't have space in his lab back then. And at the same time, Oxford already accepted me, so I went to Oxford. And in the end, I ended up working with David Ludwig as well, a few years later. Uh, David invited me to analyze the publicly available data from DietVids, which is this last paper that was published uh, it's it's actually it, we still don't know sure if it will be in the February or March issue of the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition, but it's already uh, ahead of ahead uh, I mean, of print, online available. It's open access, and they invited me to analyze data from diet fits because these could shed some insights on a different kind of model, the carbohydrate insulin model, uh, which
1: in contrast to the uh most prevalent paradigm of obesity
2: states that weight changes are the result of a surplus or deficit of calories in contrast the carbohydrate model states that weight changes are a consequence of the hormonal response to different foods in particular to glycemic load um, uh, just, I mean, the small practices there, glycemic load is how much your glucose changes in your blood times how much of those foods you, you ate. So, so in, the glycemic index is how much a uh, standard amount of food raises your blood when you eat it. The glycemic load is glycemic index times the portion size you have that particular, that particular. Food and the carbohydrate insulin model proposes that well, it is glycemic index stimulating insulin suppression, What makes it harder or easier to eat more, which which brings weight changes in you know either direction, uh, up or down. So that's how I became involved with those two models and basically analyzing data for both of them and. Uh, I think it's, I mean, now that I think about it, it's fun to say that both models are opposites to what I used to think when I left med school, you know? And I think that it is also uh, likely that the lipid energy model and the carbohydrate insulin model are surely approximations to the natural philosophical truth of the underlying mechanisms of human physiology you know i mean it's it's likely there is this this famous phrase in data analysis that all models are wrong but they are useful uh it's not that every single prediction of a lipid energy model will be met to the millimeter and every single prediction of the carbohydrate model will be correct and both models are a statement in a multifactorial Uh, set of correlated mechanisms. It's just that they can approximate us better to the interventions that are more likely to influence a positive change in someone's life. So it's not not really about which model wins the race, which model uh, turns out to be more correct or correct it's really more about, let's understand this better so we can help more people. And I don't mind if a particular model isn't 100% accurate. I don't expect that from any model. And it's just, I want to find which are the variables that have a greater influence on the phenomenon I am interested in because I see patients who suffer from things derived from a normal facility. So, so that's how I see it. And that's that was the, the focus of my research for the last semester and will be the focus of my research for, for this year at least.
0: Wow. No, that's amazing. So could you sum <coughs> up one more time in a, in a really simple way? Could you sum up both of those models one more time? And can you tell me what ways are you guys coming up with testing those models? Like how are you figuring out which one can better explain what's going on there?
2: Sure. I mean, that's a very, this is a very broad answer, but the lipid energy model to, yeah, you could say even oversimplify it, states that during carbohydrate restriction, those who are lean will present larger LDL elevations as a result of a higher demand in lipid oxidation. In contrast with people who have a larger peripheral reserve of lipids, they don't have as much strain on lipid oxidation because they have those large reserves. So, so that's why they present even opposite LDL changes. That's for the lipid energy model and the
1: LMHR phenotype. LMHR being lean mass hyperresponders,
2: lean people hyper respond to LDL changes. When they mistook carbohydrates, the carbohydrate insulin model and the energy-based model are on a different phenomenon. I mean, dietary related, epidemiologically related, but different phenomena. Uh, and they both try to explain why people change their weight either up or down. Uh, energy-based model says that it is energy deficits or surplus. It doesn't matter so much the chemical nature of the Calorie source you are consuming. If in the end there's more energy, you change, your weight will go up. If in the end there's less energy, your weight will go down. And that's why some, I mean, most of uh, those who propose or accept the energy based model tends to agree with the idea that all calories are equal and that it doesn't matter where they come from, it's their number. The carbohydrate incident model proposes that. Weight changes as a result of insulin metabolism, which is stimulated by carbohydrates. But again, not all carbohydrates are equal. So it's not the same. You have, you know, strawberries, raw strawberries, then a strawberry milkshake. So so both are high in carbs, but there one has tons of fiber, the other one doesn't. So that's why the carbohydrate insulin model proposes that it is glycemic load, or in other words, a proxy of your physiological response to a load of of sugars or carbohydrates, and that as a consequence of that, your many different things change change in your physiology. One of them, your satiety, although. I mean, that's been a hit in Twitter these days, but satiety is also very hard to predict and to measure. But also, the predisposition of your adipose tissue to store fat. And then, as a result, how much fuel there is in your bloodstream after you ate, how quickly that fuel uh, is cleared from your bloodstream, and therefore, therefore, how soon and how hungry you feel on our way. Few hours later because then having this you know huge spike of insulin and the physiological changes that come with it could make it more likely that you overeat in your next year. Mm. uh those are the main i mean the two phenomena they are uh trying to, to understand and how they differ you could say that the contrast the lipid energy model, in terms for the LDL changes, is saturated fat consumption. I mean, people who who try to explain LDL changes in people following a ketogenic diet, many of them uh, suggest or support the idea that it is their saturated fat consumption what is driving those LDL changes, and how we test them really depends on the data we have. So, so uh, for the LMHR paper that we had was uh, the cholesterol survey that they probably kicked off two years ago uh, where we had those data then we were able to, to analyze that particular hypothesis. Uh, but right now we are working, we're finishing a meta analysis looking into that same question. And right now here in my lab, we are uh Carrying the what you could say is the, the experimental confirmation of that particular hypothesis. So we are enrolling people with different BMIs and prescribing a super strict ketogenic diet. And of course, the prediction is that those who are lean will present, you know, elevation, and, and those who are not won't present such elevations. So, so in the end. The mo- I mean, the way you test a model really depends on the data you have. Now, to go back to the carbohydrate model, in this particular case, we used the data from a very famous trial in nutritional science, which is the DietFit. Uh, perhaps as a short recap, DietFit trial was published in 2018 in JAMA, and it was carried out at Stanford University. It was led by Professor Chris Gardner, and it randomized uh, more than six hundred participants with overweight to follow a carbohydrate diet, low carbohydrate diet, or low fat diet for one year. And additional, an important addition to this is that uh, diet fits researchers made sure that both arms received participants. Uh, well, nutritional education, and that both arms restricted sugar, both arms increased their fiber consumption, both arms have a healthy version of whatever diet they were allocated to. So, in a in a in a also as a token of science transparency and reproducibility they uploaded the data they collected. Uh, demographics, lipid panels, dietary data. And those are the data that we were able to use to ask slightly different questions to what were asked in the randomized control trial. for example, um, the end result, the the 12-month time point result for the diet feeds trial was that both groups lost a comparable amount of weight. So both low-carb and low-fat group lost more or less the same amount of weight. And many interpreted these results as all calories are equal. It doesn't matter what type of calories you restrict. If you are adhere to the diet, you, you lose a second comparable amount of weight. However, and I mean, let's not get, I mean, only if you want, but it's not necessary to get too technical about it. From a statistical interpretation point of view, this interpretation is not technically correct. Uh, However, because we had the data, we were able to run tests about, okay, both arms lost weight, but why? What are the factors that explain weight loss in both groups? And then, therefore, we were able to inquire a bit more about the mechanisms of weight loss, not necessarily about which diet made more made people lose more weight, but more about why people lost weight. And we use dietary data, Olympic panel data, to understand better the mechanisms that explain weight loss in that particular trial. So again, it really depends on the type of data that you have and how you choose to to test a particular model, so far, and I think this is true for perhaps any experimental, any hypothesis. It's very rare when one experiment absolutely convinces everyone of a particular conclusion. You know, I mean, it's it's not. I I definitely wouldn't go as far as saying that our analysis absolutely confirmed the carbohydrate insulin model. Although of course they support it, or it's it's way easier to defend the carbon hydrogen model than the energy based model, based on the results we obtain from our analysis, or that the evidence we have presented so far absolutely confirms the energy model, because those data and those results are not enough yet. We are still working on producing more more data to to test if these hypotheses are correct or not. But
1: it is definitely. Uh, worth highlighting
2: that so far we have tried to go the extra mile in playing devil's advocate against our own ideas and we get consistent results from different sources of data and different tests and it seems to us with the data we have so far that no, it's not saturated fat what's driving LDL changes in people who carbohydrates. Is the strain on their lipid metabolism, and no, all calories are not equal. It really depends on the physiological response to carbohydrate intake, what explains better weight loss.
0: Yeah, and and that's it. Wow. Well, okay. So I, this is pure anecdote. I, I've done this for 16 years now. Um, you know, I've been a personal trainer. I've been a nutrition coach and I just anecdote, but I can tell you anecdotally that the more people I tried to put on a low fat, higher carbohydrate diet with lots of grains and lean proteins and lots of fruits and vegetables, In my experience and what I've seen is the entire reason that I practice low-carbohydrate nutrition with most of my clients because I could not get it to work maybe it did work. And I just saw all of the wrong people, or maybe I'm exaggerating. It wasn't all people that it didn't work for because you do hear that you hear that. Like the the thing that you really should avoid is combination of fat and carbohydrates. Like you could go very low fat and high carbohydrate and be okay and lose weight. You could do the opposite, go low carbohydrate and be higher fat and also lose weight. You just can't combine the two energy sources, too much carbohydrate, too much fat, really bad. But in my experience, when I started using low carbohydrate diets, it's, it's almost the reverse to where I don't find many people that that won't work for. So from where I am, you know, I'm not a researcher, I just get paid by people to help give them, you know, advice that should help improve their health. But I can say, again, anecdotally, that's the whole reason I'm here and that's the whole reason we're having this conversation because I think low-carbohydrate works a lot better for more people. Even if the mechanism isn't exactly perfectly explained, practically speaking, on the ground, it sure seems like somewhere in that world is the truth.
2: I think that's... I The other day, uh, there was these short debate on Twitter because oh my god I mean I don't know at you know at what point in humanities history we decided that the topics that require more nuance should be discussed in a platform that only allows for 280 characters. I mean that's <laughs> that's just crazy right I mean the this this platform allows for very little amounts of text very limited Amounts of you know other forms of media. Yeah, let's debate here politics and science. Doesn't make any sense, but but okay. I mean that's the way it is. And the political and scientific debate in Twitter, I mean that's 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 basically you know the, the modern Greeks uh philosopher's match to go back to philosophy. But the point here was that uh the low-cup community was accused of uh, oversimplifying nutrition by just recommending, oh, you should restrict carbs for everything. You know? And I mean, I do not deny that perhaps there are some healthcare workers who uh, just prescribe low carb. But I don't think that's the majority of us. That's certainly not how I practice. Uh, The thing is that exactly as you've said, most of the people i see benefit from low carb and in most of the patients i i see it, it works it's not that i have i mean i have prescribed ozempic i have prescribed aspirin for primary uh uh for primary prevention, I have prescribed statins in certain cases. I have prescribed I have nothing against them other than I think they're other than the perception of how effective they are tends to be overstated. And I don't, I mean, the, the old analogy on which is the better tool, if the hammer or the scissors, well, it really depends on what you're trying to do. Are you cutting paper or, you know, hanging a uh, frame in your wall? It's not that low carb is the only thing that works or that it works for everyone all the time. It's just that for the majority of the metabolic problems we have in the world today, It's, I think, the best starting point for most. This doesn't mean you won't require other forms of metabolic interventions down the road. It's just a good place to start. And along the way, it can solve many other things. I mean, uh, I have lost count on the times I've heard now I sleep better now I feel less anxious, now I have more energy, now my, I mean, sometimes my, 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 or vice versa, I mean, I am, am, my brother, my brother has repeatedly given me permission to tell a little bit about his story, but my brother struggled with anxiety for, for, for a while, he was not interested in losing weight, but, but he was overweight back then. And back then, this was yeah a few years ago, I told him, well, there's some evidence that suggests that, uh, uh, that a ketogenic diet could help with anxiety. Why don't you try that? And then the positive side effect was that he lost weight. The same thing happens, you know, in the other direction. Some people are trying to lose weight and other things improve. Sleep, emotional issues. So it's not that I believe it works for everything. Is that in my experience in why I have observed in my patients and in the research I follow and produce is a good starting point. This doesn't mean I, I will never prescribe a diet under any condition, or I will never advise for high carb diets on specific contexts. Because that's, I mean, it's not like. I only prescribe one antibiotic when my patients have an infection. You know, I mean, I, I, healthcare is all about finding the right intervention for the right context. The thing is that insulin resistance is so prevalent nowadays that the most adequate intervention for the relevant context is very frequently carbohydrate restriction, but that's it.
0: Yeah. Wow. No. so many great points in what you just said. I think about somebody like Nick Norwitz. Like He was a lean mass hyper-responder. He chose a ketogenic diet for healing. He needed to heal his gut. His bones were terrible. He found the ketogenic diet. He wasn't seeking weight loss. He needed healing. And to see that his cholesterol numbers went through the roof, his LDL cholesterol went through the roof is very disconcerting. So asking those questions as far as the and the lipid energy model, I think is so important for people that are like that, that have to eat that way or they're going to suffer. And, and you're right. It's not just weight loss. I was on a podcast recently where the host had recently decided to try a carnivore diet for the first time in her life. And we spent 20 minutes talking about all of the benefits that she had noticed after like two or three weeks of being carnivore. And after we got off the phone call, she was like, Oh my goodness, I I can't believe I forgot to mention that I lost five pounds in two weeks. <laughs> It wasn't even on a radar. Like the other stuff was so important, it trumped all of that other stuff. So I think that's a really good point. I'm gonna add. I'm gonna add something here. I hope this fits the kind of context and maybe helps tell the story at least for energy balance. Okay. So I worked on metabolic carts. I worked for over a decade measuring people's metabolic rates using metabolic carts. And what we learned, especially early on, is that the people that maybe should have been burning like 2,000 calories at rest, if they started eating 1,500 calories. And, and, you know, less than their metabolic rate and started working out on top of that, especially, they would lose weight, but it would be a limited amount of time because their metabolism would compensate. Their metabolic rate would drop. We see that all the time. So we got used to telling people, like, look, you need to eat at least the minimum amount of calories that your body is burning. Okay? So now as my career is going, I started noticing this other phenomenon where people are starting to do intermittent fasting. Okay. So maybe they're eating one meal a day. They're eating lots of animal products. These are also people that should have been burning 2000 calories. Maybe they were only consuming 1500 calories like the other people, but the difference was these people weren't hungry. They didn't want to consume more calories as long as they were eating the right things, but their metabolic rates were not, Low. They were not normal. They were high, and I I had to keep seeing that to be like, what is going on? This shouldn't be happening. They're both taking in about the same amount of calories. Maybe they're choosing different meal timing or different ways to get those calories. What? Why is the delta between these two people a thousand calories? How can how can the faster be burning a thousand calories more than the dieter? <laughs> really interesting. I think that's
2: look. What makes these results hard to reconcile sometimes is that people forget that one of the main ways of restricting carbohydrates is restricting your calories. And vice versa. If you restrict carbohydrates, it's likely to restrict calorie intake. If you restrict calorie intake, it's likely will restrict carbohydrate intake. Because of the way that it is you know, in most... Western countries—they go together. So, on that, on one hand, that makes both hard to separate or to, to to dissect the the effects of both interventions. Of course, if you fast, you are likely reducing calorie intake and carbohydrate intake. And of course, if you only consume highly satiating foods, you will likely restrict carbohydrates later or calories later of any, any sort. So it's, again, they go together most of the times. And this is what makes sometimes hard to tell what is driving the wheel, if it's calories or something else. You just made me, <clears throat> you just reminded me of, of a short and grace experiment I subjected myself into and uh, some of my best friends six or seven years ago. Um, that was perhaps one of my first explorations into, into carbohydrates uh, and insulin versus uh, calories in, calories out. Uh, to make a long story short, what we tried to do was that, because, okay, let me draw some practice here. The calories in calories out model tends to focus on the calories in part of the equation because it's super hard to measure your calories out. I mean, it's it, it kind of perceives calories out as this fixed number that will stay there and we will just focus on your calories in to make you lose weight. But the calories part, the calories out component is super, super hard to measure. And it's not stable at all, as as you just just pointed out. I mean, it's it's you really shouldn't assume it's fixed, and you really shouldn't assume it's is uh, you know, constant. At the same time, you just cannot go to work inside a metabolic chamber, at least not for most people. So we tried to to test a real world setting calorie in, calorie out model. Uh, by uh, first of all, having a better than usual idea about our energy expenditure. So back then, uh, Fitbits started becoming a thing, and I actually wrote to Fitbits to learn if they could share with me the equation they used to to estimate calories calorie expenditure with your heart rate and they denied but then we were able to reverse engineer that model and we found the, the, the paper where they got that particular formula and then we tested if the heart rate monitor was actually accurate against the halter and and we, we, we did to the best of our capabilities we obtained for one month our average energy expenditure And then what we did, once we had that number, we designed a diet that would adhere to all the recommendations for a healthy diet: 50% carbs, 30% protein, 20% fats, very low in saturated fat, very low in sodium, you know, all the regular stuff. But we used fruits with reported insulin indexes. We ate the exact same thing for a month. Every day, the same breakfast, the same lunch, the same dinner for one month. And then measured uh, weight. And then what we did was that we had one one month for washout. And then another month, the exact same foods but rearranged. So all the high insulinogenic foods were once a day on the same meal. And all the low insulinogenic foods the other meal with sixteen hours of fasting in between, so it's we were absolutely sure it was the same amount of calories because it was the same food every day, and we were absolutely sure they were the same quality of calories because it was the same food every day, and yeah, not surprisingly, uh, in one month we lost weight with intermittent fasting, and the other one our weight went slightly up. But what you made me, what you remind me now. Is that the day we started, I was very worried because I couldn't believe that was the amount of food I needed. Uh, I I was sure I made some error in, in calculating the diets, you know, because it was, I remember very clearly, it was like 5 p.m., and I couldn't... Stamped the idea of eating what was left in my daily, in my daily meals bag, and I I was sure, you know, I I fucked it up. I, I surely calculated wrong something, and my friends were telling me the same. Like this is just too much food; I won't be able to finish. And I was like, okay, I will triple check every number. Also, because I am slightly like, you know, dyslexic, and I will, I will triple check everything. Uh, just bear with me, I triple-checked every diet and all of them were correctly calculated. Wow! And I was like, okay, it looks like this is it. Try to finish it the best you can. Okay. Three days after, all of us were hungry. And we stayed hungry for one month. So it was, I mean, then I learned that and this is something that you can very easily be, because you don't eat the exact same thing every day, you know. But the same amount and the same types of food that made me feel super fed up 72 hours before, now we're leaving me hungry. And satiety is such a weird thing, and such a hard thing too infer to predict, because, I mean, I, I, I experienced that for for two months. Uh, the same amount of food that made me feel super full on the first month, I mean, th- that amount of, of, that sensation lasted for 48 hours. I, I spent hungry the rest of the month, and in, in the month with intermittent fasting, I wasn't hungry at all. Because I was having one huge spike of insulin every day, and then I was finishing my day with no insulin spikes, and then with sixteen hours of fasting, but I I wasn't hungry that moment. So it's really, really. I mean, to me, that convinced me of it's really not the amount of food. Yeah, and it's it, what drives my willingness to eat more is definitely what happens in my physiology when, when when I rearrange insulin spikes, you know?
0: Wow. Yeah, that's a great observation. And again, from what I see with my clients, they would report the exact same thing in a much less scientific way, but they would anecdotally say the exact same thing. Look, man, we're talking about calories in, calories out. We're talking about saturated fat. We're talking about LDL cholesterol. These are sacred cows, right? Like these are ideas that, that people put their entire careers on and the implications of your work are so great. We, we almost don't even know like what questions we could continue asking in the future because the paradigm would completely shift. Everything would change if, 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 if some of the things you're studying turn out to be right. And it sure seems like every day there's more and more evidence to support the things that we've been talking about today. So on that note, what kind of pushback have you gotten? What kind of um, what, what kind of criticism have you gotten? Because I don't I don't think you can do this kind of work and not get some type of criticism for it.
2: Sure, I mean I think that it's understandable and expected that those who like I did learned in a particular way, how physiology works, they will, you know, like, it's always annoying to have to learn again. Now, I, 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 by no means I'm trying to imply that they are lazy or whatever, you know, or, or or, or it's just, I think that our default state is always uh, skepticism. And that's okay. I mean, I, I think that's, 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 That's fantastic. I have the same attitude towards pretty much everything. It's perfectly understandable and expected that uh, people show skepticism the first time they encounter an idea. And they push back with the arguments they know about. But, hey, how do you explain then this study? How do you explain these anecdote? How do you explain these, you know... uh, tangential concept, how do you, that's, that's, that's okay, that's, as long as everyone is able to change their mind. Uh, I, 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 there's this meme I love when I teach statistics about Han Solo, about how uh, Han Solo is a perfect skeptic, because he starts not believing in the force, but when he sees Unquestionable empirical evidence, he changes his mind. So, so that's that's the way it should be, you know. It's it's of course it's harder to change your mind if you have any form of vested interest, not necessarily a financial one. It's not that oh, everyone is trying to make more money, and I mean the world is not as simple as that. Uh, sometimes that vested interest is perhaps some of your identity is vested into that, you know. Hey, I am the doctor who prescribes. A, B, and Z, and that would make it harder at a personal level. That's okay. That's I do believe that all of us should be skeptics to any new idea. I'm not convinced uh, carbohydrate restriction is a new idea, and I am not convinced. Actually, for example, if you go, if you go, uh, yeah, this is ancient history, but. Uh, uh, Wilbur Otto Atwater was the one who made the conversion factors from grams to calories, you know, four for carbohydrates, nine for fats, seven for alcohol. One of his uh, colleagues back then, Max Ru. he the guy, I mean, Max Ruebner did it for animals, for dogs. He did some experiments with dogs, which wouldn't be allowed by any ethics committee today. But, but he experimented with dogs and uh, Atwater experimented with humans. And if you go back to that, to the history of how those experiments were designed and were interpreted, and I mean, you would find lots of problems. Uh, and, and none of those experiments would pass modern peer review. But very interestingly, if you read Max Rubner's text at the very last chapter, He says that, I mean, despite having dedicated years and years and years of his life to estimating the energy contributions of macronutrients, he said that uh, it was unlikely that the energy contributions would explain most of the metabolic problems they, they, they observed, and that it was most likely the chemical properties of those foods what uh, affected those, uh, those results, you know? I mean, not even the father of energy balance believed energy balance uh, explained uh, metabolic problems. Uh, and he used, I mean, a different language because, of course, back then, they didn't have around concepts like, I mean, hormones existed, but not exactly way we see them today, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So pushback is inevitable. Pushback is uh, some people have pointed out that hey, that data is from self-reported, self-selected patients. Hey, this is not a randomized controlled trial. Hey, this is not uh, this is in contrast or this is at odds with, for example, I don't know, other study, whatever. That's okay. I mean, and, and that's why we still try to produce new arguments. I don't have a problem changing my mind about what causes obesity or what causes LDL changes
1: because I have changed my mind already you
2: know I I I left med school believing it was saturated fat and energy balance I honestly don't have a problem in changing my mind again I already did it and yes some of those points have uh pushed our arguments forward and have uh I mean, some of those points also were self-identified, you know. I mean, this is imperfect beta, and that's the part where you acknowledge the limitations in the study. Uh other points have made us okay, perhaps an experiment that looks like this could counter argue this point. Or or and in the end, that's the way science progresses. It's it's I don't expect to convince everyone in a single experiment, you know That's at the same time you could always argue that not everyone is convinced by facts and that if that were if that were the case we wouldn't have many of the debates we have on twitter so 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 there has been some pushback but at the same time i haven't
0: seen an argument
2: that makes me change my mind
0: again Yeah. And again, every time we talk, there seems to be more evidence. There's always more evidence and you are in such a unique place where you're working with people in clinic. You're also studying the data and conducting the research and analyzing the research. And so you of all people would know and to have somebody in that position who is willing to change their mind, I think is just so absolutely wonderful and so helpful for pushing this message forward. So I really appreciate you and everything you've done, Dr. Sotomona. Where would you, like people to go to find you and connect with you in your work
2: uh, twitter is a good place at adrian sotamoda uh, s-o-t-o-m-o-t-a and yeah uh, email is adrian soto at TEC.mx dot m-x and yeah, happy to to continue learning about metabolism and to to talk about it anytime. Thanks again for having
0: me. That's awesome. It's such an honor to have you, dude. I would—I knew this conversation was going to be great, whatever direction it went in. And I just, I, I love learning from you and I love the work that you're doing. I get so excited to see that what I'm seeing with my people on the ground, what I'm experiencing myself is not only something that you're seeing anecdotally, but something that you are seeking to, to prove and to, to show the data so that we can satisfy some of these questions once and for all, because we are in a very, very bad metabolic mess right now. And people are very, very sick and they are suffering and we need to find better solutions because clearly like what we've tried, it doesn't look like it's working. So Dr. Adrian Sotomota, thank you so very much for everything you do. And thank you for taking time out of your very busy life to come chat with us today. We really appreciate you. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Absolutely. And this has been another episode of Boundless Body Radio. At the close of one year and the beginning of a new year, I just wanted to make sure to thank you, the listener, for all of your support and for listening to our show. 2022 was an amazing year that saw lots of growth with the podcast, but also came with amazing results with the people that we get to work with in our business, Boundless Body. We began our business during the confusion of the 2020 pandemic and opened up in July of that year. And we've been absolutely amazed with how things have gone. It was a lot of blood, sweat and tears and a lot of building the plane as we were flying it, but it's turned out amazing. We just absolutely love seeing our clients Get amazing results. We love seeing all the great feedback and positive reviews that come through on Apple. So if you haven't already, please leave us a review there on Apple, as it's the best way for the show to continue to grow and impact the lives of people all over the world. We're super excited for 2023. We already have lots of great guests and topics lined up, and we have no intention of slowing down our releases anytime soon. (laughs) Also, feel free to check out our premium content, which we post on Patreon. There you will find our extended and unedited episodes, which we post on the day of recording, so you actually don't have to wait for the edited version of the podcast to release, which can sometimes be several weeks, actually. And on Patreon, you will also find the Boundless Body Radio premium podcast. This was my special project this year, I really wanted to combine all the very best clips about one topic from our show to combine into extended episodes that take a very deep dive into a topic. I've created two separate topics as a masterclass that are three episodes each. One is all about the macronutrients and the second is all about keto and ketogenic diets. That way you can get a fantastic education from some of our amazing guests in a format that can help you zero in on the topic that you are most interested in, something I'm very proud of and believe that we are sharing this content for a very high value. Remember that you can also book a complimentary 30-minute session with us on our website at myboundlessbody.com. And thank you again so very much for listening to Boundless Body Radio.